I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about pretty much anything that interests me, like books, movies, sports, music, culture, politics, being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you'd like at faithimprovised at gmail.com or leave a voice message at the podcast homepage on anchor.fm. In this episode, I respond to a practical question uh, about what I talked about last week. I talk about a great book I just read and uh, had a super conversation about with my friend Andrew the other day over coffee. And I explore some of the aspects of the kingdom of God and the Christian gospel that many white Christians are completely missing when it comes to responding to um, issues of race and participating in discussions of race with the ultimate aim of actually embodying God's justice uh, with regard to race. But first, a question from last week's discussion from Mark. Last week, I talked to my colleague, uh, Max Botner, uh, about some of the discussions that we've been having at the seminary about uh, the book White Fragility. And uh, Max was noting that one of the chief difficulties for many white Christians is the fact that we are just so uh, captured by individualism. Uh, so so much of our thinking, our feeling, the, our way of seeing, and our way of being Christian is thoroughly individualistic. And Mark wrote me and asked, how can we press against this in our churches? How can we work against the individualism that that shapes us? Well, great question. A um, couple thoughts on this. First of all, uh, commit yourself to learning to see it. Our churches are indeed saturated with individualism and completely oriented by it. Um, just as uh, America is as a whole, this is one of our chief ideologies. And you know, if we move out larger, uh, uh, expand our scope a little bit, the West is thoroughly individualistic, and much of the world um, has sort of been absorbed into this way of thinking and seeing and fearing and hoping everything. Our our imaginations are are shaped in this way. Uh, just commit yourself to the rest of your life, learning to see it and identifying it and exposing it. Um, pay very close attention to how you talk and how you express the faith and, and pay close attention when you're talking to other people uh, about the faith, you know, just conversing with other Christians about why they do what they do. Um, attend to the horizon of how they conceive of what it is to be Christian. And this will take a lot of uh, really expanding your imagination and it will take, uh, it'll be exhausting in some ways. And it will really take a while for you to notice your language and notice other people's language. Um, I just get to give an example. Um, when I, I often will ask um, people, you know, why did you uh, come to seminary or ask someone, uh, you know, why did you take this job? And if this person's Christian, they will often narrate uh, their decision or talk about what they, their thought process. Um, they will narrate it in, in completely individualistic terms. They might say something like, well, the Lord led me to do this, or um, I, I felt, you know, I, I had a peace about this, um, uh, or, you know, we felt, I don't know, uh, we felt a call or something like this. Um, because the, the, the language set that we have been supplied as Christian people in America is individualistic. Consider this, when the Bible lays out ways for sort of uh, making decisions, if you were to uh, consult the book of, Prober, uh, book of Proverbs, um, 
that those kinds of things don't ever come up. Um, Proverbs lays out very mundane ways of thinking about this, like ask old people, um, ask a bunch of old people, uh, get some different opinions, um, get a group of counselors together to help you make a decision. Um, spirituality in the Bible is more mundane because the spiritual vision in the Bible is that each of us are connected to the people of God with this great wealth of resources uh, to help us navigate life um, as a body part in community. So learn to see it and learn to think, learn to identify ways that Christian discourse has been captured individualistically. Um, and then commit yourself to reshaping your thinking. Um, change your language. Find some new language. Uh, I stopped using the language of my salvation or I got saved or something like that. Um, I now try to express the fact that I'm enjoying salvation among the people of God. So the fact that how I even think about what God has done is um, attached to a body, attached to a body of people. Um, you know, realize that all of the almost all of the yous in New Testament letters, when a, uh, when a New Testament writer addresses an audience, he, they're doing just that. They're addressing an audience. They're they're plural yous, but in English we just take them as me. Um, another way you can change your language is stop talking about me or I when you think about being Christian, but start using the language of we and us. Um, what is God doing among us? Uh, I have somebody that I know that will always, you know, ask me this question: "What's God doing in your life?" Um, that's a way of conceiving of this whole thing as something that is done between God and me, instead of uh, something that um, I carry out among a body of people, and that is our enjoyment of God Himself. Um, the language that we use to talk about our salvation. Uh, as evangelicals, I was taught this way, uh, is that we ask Jesus into our hearts. I mean, I'm, I'm using we in our language there because I've, I've tried to cultivate this. Uh, but being Christian involves me. I ask Jesus into my heart. Um, you know, he's my personal savior. These are expressions and sets of language that are not used in the New Testament. We've personalized and individualized everything. So renovate your language and go through your whole vocabulary for how you think about being Christian and make some changes. Tinker with some stuff. It will probably feel, if you've been a Christian for a long while, it will probably feel really uncomfortable. You might feel like you're losing your salvation or you're offending God or something like that. But just think about this. If you can't find the language in the Bible, then just dispense with the language. You're not losing anything. Um, and then see how the Bible configures this whole thing and start to cultivate that kind of language. Just start talking that way. It'll be better for you. The Bible's better than the language that you're familiar with. Um, it's not the worst thing in the world. Also, as far as what can you do among, uh, you know, in your church, um, all I can say is just start doing this. See yourself as absolutely connected to your church and just start living that way. Um, don't see it as optional that you might sort of be dissatisfied with your church after a while and then leave. Now, that doesn't cover every situation. I know that there are some people that have had um, abusive situations in their churches or very controlling, domineering. There are some um, difficult situ uh, situations we can get ourselves into, and perhaps the best thing to do would be to leave a church. Um, 
If that's the case, however, uh, and especially if you've been there for a long time, that should be a tremendously traumatic experience, as if you are a body part leaving the body, um, or as if you are cutting off a limb or something like that. This should really be traumatic, uh, which should make you slow to do it. Um, but for for most of us, um, see yourself as connected, and um, don't don't see it as optional that you would just check out of community life or not take it seriously. Um, I remind myself all the time, I'm an elbow when it comes to being Christian. I need a shoulder or else I'm not going to be receiving the flow of life to me and a wrist needs me. So Paul has this image uh, of the body of Christ in uh, Ephesians and Colossians, it's a couple other places, but in Colossians, he talks about how, in Ephesians, um, how every body part receives life through the joints. So it's like Christ is the head and he sends life through the body. And the way that we receive that is from one another. So when we think about being Christian, if we are not connected to a body uh, and not receiving life from that vital connection, uh, according to the New Testament, that's just not, that's not something that is in view. Um, it's the same thing, at, you know, as in Paul's mind, as you walking down the street and finding just a hand lying on the sidewalk. I mean, that would be arresting. You, you, you know, you would take notice. Some, something's very wrong there. Well, in the same way, a Christian not attached to a specific body of people um, is, uh, is highly problematic. It's not even in view. It's not a possibility sort of in the mind of the New Testament. What also is not really in view is, um, you know, a foot being transferred to this body and then in that body and then that body. You do that enough times, there's going to be problems developing. Um, so what I've come to, to see is um, I'm committed to my church for the rest of my life, pretty much. Um, we, we Our family did this at one point in the past. Uh, we made a move about ten, uh, nine years ago um, that was necessary and, um, you know, for a variety of reasons. Um, but in the several years before that, we um, turned down a career opportunity because of our church. Um, I mean, that's just not, that's not often done in this world, uh, in our culture. I mean, the most important thing in the world is to pursue your career prospects. And if you need to, you just uproot and you go to another church, find a church in that new town or something like that. Um, that, I mean, if we, if, if um, the church is, has our ultimate loyalty and not our career and not our job, not, not money, um, we should really see ourselves as so vitally connected to a local body that to remove ourselves would be traumatizing, not only to me as a body part, but uh, to the body. Something would that's that's just problematic. Um, of course, the fact that our um, very often we do leave churches and we do make moves like that, and no one seems to notice, and it seems very normal in our culture uh, for people to move about the country uh, and about the world. Um, that's just an indication that we have so accommodated um, community life and our, our own way of being Christian to these larger forces that we just we do see it as normal. That's that's really problematic. Uh, one other thing that I've done is um, I've committed myself to opening up my local church as a gift. Uh, about seven or eight years ago, 
I uh, just kind of came across this way of thinking where, you know, I'm part of this community of people that's like 85 people that are relatively unremarkable. I mean, who would put this collection of people together? And um, I thought, you know, that this is, you know, I studied, I studied this stuff all the time uh, for my job. And if what I'm studying is really the case, then that group of people um, is God's richest gift to me. And if I'm not seeing that that's the case, then there's then that's my challenge. That's on me. So I committed myself to, over time, opening up this community as a gift to me. It's God's present to me. I'm going to open it up. And um, that is going to take 20 years, 35 years. It's going to take a long period of time to really have my life wedded to the life of that community and to spend time um, drawing out the richness of the various people at various stages of, of life in that community and to draw out the, all the richness that that community as a whole has to offer me. And I think I would issue the same challenge to other people. See your church as a gift and stay and be a part of it and realize that that body of people is the way that God blesses you with his own life and your vital connection to it um, is your vital connection to God. That's New Testament theology, even though I know it runs against the grain, like I've been saying, of our individualistically oriented uh, Christian faith. Um, and if you start kind of moving in this direction and you start kind of altering your thinking, I would just say one last thing. Uh, don't expect anybody else to get it. And don't expect anybody else to be on the same journey that you're on. Um, don't try to change your church. Don't try to fix it. Um, don't try to open everybody's eyes to it. Just start doing the thing that we're all supposed to be doing. Start enjoying the church. Start receiving the church. Um, start um, appreciating the church and giving thanks for it. Um, like I'm saying, that's, that's you taking responsibility to really play your part uh, as a body part. And it's only in that way that others might be, who knows, they may not, um, spark to see things differently. By the way, uh, at the risk of a little bit of self-promotion here, I, I have a few places where I touch on some of these themes. In my book on Ephesians, the drama of Ephesians, uh, I tried to match Paul's language as I relayed the teaching of that book and uh, of that letter from Paul um, and, and tried to adjust my language so that it was community-based. This is Paul's letter is written to a community, and it's something that the community performs and embodies. It's not just me. It's not individualistic. So it's written from that perspective to try to transform our imaginations a little bit. And um, several years ago, uh, Scott McKnight and Joe uh, Modica edited a book uh, called The Apostle Paul and the Christian Life. And they asked uh, contributors to the volume just the very simple question, how does Paul conceive of the Christian life? And in my chapter in that book, I tried to answer it um, that um, he, he conceives of the Christian life as something that is lived as a community. Um, that's, that's sort of how he addresses it in each of his letters. And so I have a discussion that reorients um, our minds to get uh, into that frame. So a couple resources to check out and some things to think about. Uh, so thank, thanks, Mark, for your uh, good question. I think this is going to be a long-term journey for many of us. 
uh, to be adjusting our thinking and our living and our, our imaginations. And um, I keep in my mind this number of 35 years, you know, I'm committed to my church for 35 years. I'm I'm giving myself, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 year increments to kind of check in on my thinking because I do think it takes that long to make these adjustments. It's not going to happen overnight. And um, we sort of have to learn in our immediate culture to kind of be in it for the long term. I want to tell you about a book. This is not a paid advertisement. It's just a little account of a super book that I just read. And that the other day, uh, my friend Andrew came over, uh, sat on the back patio, and we discussed it. Uh, we decided to uh, read this book together because it just is so timely. Lee Camp is the author. It's published by Erdman's, and the title is Scandalous Witness, A Little Political Manifesto for Christians. And uh, in this book, uh, Lee Camp, who is a theologian uh, teaching at um, Lipscomb University, a school where my niece is going to be attending uh, this fall, or at least starting, who knows what's going to happen, uh, all things considered. But uh, Lee Camp is a theologian, teaches there, and in this book, uh, he uh, identifies some of the problematic ways that uh, Christians in America think about politics, and not only think about politics, but embody politics. And his claim uh, is a pretty tough one. It's, I mean, he's not out to, you know, make friends here. Um, but he points out uh, some of the ways that American Christianity has become a bastardized form of the faith. Uh, he uses some lively and pretty salty language in this book, and I think we need to hear it. Um, it's bastardized because it is wedded to American hope. And American Christians... Uh, have not nav have not identified well how it is that much of the language of the Bible um, has been kind of co-opted by national figures and by our national political scene, and and the church has bought in. Christians have bought into this, um, so that we have come to have hope in America, as if America is the hope of the world. And many of our elected officials talk this way, uh, going way back. Uh, to the before the founding of our country, and um, presidents throughout our history have spoken this way, and political figures throughout our history have spoken this way. We see ourselves as the hope of the world, and for Christians to uh, to see that that's the case is actually a surrender of our loyalty to Christ. And Lee Camp goes into how um, uh, to all the subtleties of of how that loyalty is compromised. Um, he points out the difference between liberalism and the Christian faith. And by liberalism, Lee Camp does not mean what we might mean, uh, people who are liberals. He's basically talking about um, the West or the socio-political order uh, in the wake of the Enlightenment. Um, we are all liberals. That is, we, uh, we value freedom. And Lee Camp says that there are conservative liberals and liberal liberals. And that's kind of the, you know, a more familiar spectrum that we're all a part of. And Christians often find themselves along that spectrum. We might identify as liberal, we might identify as conservative, and uh, Camp's claim is that if we see ourselves that way, we are no longer seeing ourselves as Christians, because to be a part of the kingdom of God is to be part of a radically alternative political order, and it is not 
really to be seeing yourself as an actor who is a conservative or liberal and therefore part of this liberal democratic order. Yes, we live in, in America, this liberal democratic order, um, but we do so as Christian people uh, who are part and parcel of the kingdom of God uh, without loyalties to any one nation, but loyalty alone to Christ. So Lee Camp calls for a, a way of thinking about being Christian that is neither right nor left, neither Republican or, cons- uh, or Democrat, neither conservative or liberal, um, nor uh, a way of being Christian that is religious. And he talks about religion as um, this reality that has happened in the West, in liberal uh, democratic orders, where it um, being Christian has been relegated to the realm of the internal. It, it has everything to do with my heart, and it has everything to do with um, sort of spiritual practices that we participate in maybe once a week, um, which are which are no threat to the social order, but just kind of um, you know a way of sort of saying a prayer over the culture and going on our way. And of course, the culmination of our being Christian is in um, eternity. Uh, with God in heaven. But that form of being Christian has no relevance to this world. And, um, in the New Testament, however, in, in the whole of the Bible, um, being part of the people of God and being Christian is a thoroughly and totally political reality. Lee Camp says that Christianity is not a religion, it is a politics. And this has been lost from our view in America because for America to sort of be what it is, it has had to relegate uh, Christian realities to either the you know the heavenly realm or the realm of our hearts. Um, it, it has had to do that so that it can be um, a not always just political order. And um, sadly, Christians have signed up to that and we've participated in it and we've sort of blessed it and kind of said some nice prayers over it. And uh, Lee Camp says that that is prostituting the faith and it is bastardizing the faith. Um, Jesus is not in our hearts. Jesus is on the throne of the universe, ruling over his political order called the church, uh, which he has gathered together by the Holy Spirit, um, made up of bodies and communities that enact God's public justice. So Lee Camp uh, throws it down here in this book, and it's it's um, it's a short book, uh, but one that's provocative, and I intend to read again and um, to sort of absorb everything that he has had to say into my thinking. He has a lot of great stuff to say. Um, Scandalous Witness, highly recommend it. I want to talk about race and the Christian gospel. And and I want to focus on this because this is one place where our uh, shrunken and misshapen gospel is most exposed. Uh, That is, this is where our individualized gospel is doing real damage, uh, both to us and to our world. Um, I want to make several points about this, but before I do, I just want to say a few things uh, about why I'm so interested in the topic of race. Uh, I'm interested in this topic because it's a great opportunity for me uh, to explore my identity in Christ. Uh, The object of my academic pursuit, the Apostle Paul, is constantly shaping identity. In fact, this dynamic is going on throughout the Bible. 
Um, so much of scripture does this uh, because the world, quote unquote, the world out there, and even our uh, our own cultures and our families and messages we receive all the time are always shaping our identities for us. And they are, they're, they're telling us who we are. And those are not always life-giving identities. Uh, so scripture shapes us with actually redemptive and life-giving identities. Um, we are told that we are loved. We are told that we are dearly loved children. We're told that we are image bearers. I mean, these are all identities to sort of exploit and to um, these, these identity uh, formation uh, dynamics are meant to spark our imaginations to explore all the wonders available to us for how we think about ourselves, our relation to God, and our relation to one another. So this dynamic, the fact that the world is always giving us identities and we're in, internally generating them, um, and that scripture gives us a different set of identities, that dynamic leads me to ask, in our world today, how is our culture shaping our identity? How is our culture shaping my identity? Um, you know, growing up in the world, who have I thought of myself to be? What are the implicit messages I always heard growing up? You know, how do I think about my identity, and 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 how am I being told who I am? Um, because my job is to explore Scripture and to explore all the redemptive identities that uh, we are given. Um, so. With all that in play, um, you know, having read uh, a number of uh, writers on race, um, exhorting white people to be asking themselves, you know, you need to, you need to figure out who you are as white people. Um, that has been one thing that is so underexplored by white people is what does it mean to be white? Um, how does how does the ideology of whiteness and all of its associated practices and assumptions, um, how does it make us think about ourselves and our relation to the world? Um, I want to take up that challenge because this is what I'm always doing uh, in my study. And um, I found this whole pursuit to be a redemptive one. So thinking about race and having these discussions gives me yet another opportunity to uh, explore my identity in Christ and to see where how am I thinking about myself in ways that are shaped by my culture? And how can I be thinking about myself uh, in ways that are shaped by scripture? And I am talking about this, uh, inviting others to be thinking about the same dynamic. Secondly, I'm also interested in um, learning about and talking about race because I'm very interested in uncomfortable conversations. Um, uncomfortable situations, uncomfortable conversations, uh, are moments for me to learn more about myself and more opportunities for me to learn uh, more about others. They, they open up loads of opportunities uh, to learn and to grow in the truth. And I love uncomfortable conversations because uh, they build my hope and trust in the gospel. I am always thinking, if the gospel does not have anything to say about this issue, then I'm not sure it's real. And what I found is that, you know, the gospel that I inherited, the, the highly individualized gospel, uh, just failed to say so much. Uh, it failed to say much of anything about so many issues in the world. And what I've come to see in my study of the Bible is that the actual gospel is able to put, around, put its arms around so many issues and reconfigure them for good. There, there are no issues that um, the gospel cannot 
overtake and overwhelm and transform uh, towards blessing. And thirdly, um, the reason I really enjoy learning about and talking about race is that there is just so much in the entire biblical story that involves nationalities and ethnicities, places, people, tribes, gender, social classes. And because the white evangelical gospel mostly involves just me and Jesus, it misses so much of all that. And like I said, since studying the New Testament is my academic discipline, uh, and I'm also a confessing Christian, I steer that disconnect in the face every single day. And I just got to talk about it, if only for my own sanity. So I'm always processing this reality um, that the gospel that we talk about in our culture and that, that we have inherited um, is not actually what we're seeing on the pages of scripture. And I want to close that gap for myself and invite others uh, to consider doing the same. So a number of things uh, to say about the Christian gospel and race. First of all, the gospel is the reality of the kingdom of God. So the gospel is actually this concrete reality. It is the thing that creates the kingdom of God. And the gospel is also talk about the kingdom of God. So it's the reality and it's talk about the reality. Uh, like in Colossians 1, Paul talks about how the gospel has come to you just like it's going throughout the world and it's bearing fruit. So it's this thing that's doing something. It's not just a message. Uh, Paul speaks about the gospel in similar terms in Romans. It's this actual reality out there in the world doing something. It's the power of God creating uh, resurrection life. And the gospel is also cultivated speech about what's happening when that all happens. The gospel is not a little message about a transaction that you can um, undergo in order to get reconciled to God. That's kind of what we have, many of us have come to know about the gospel, but that's not the gospel as the Bible talks about it. The gospel is not about me and my heart. It's not about me and my eternal destination and sort of just like, you know, working that out. The gospel is outside of me. It, it involves me and the body of Christ as a political entity called the kingdom of God. And it also involves the world. It's this larger thing that's bigger than me, but sort of swallows me up into it redemptively, uniting me to Christ and to, um, to the body of Christ, his corporate people, and making us one new political entity that is a political entity of holiness. That is, it is not allied with any other earthly cause, any other political party, any other nation, the kingdom of God stands alone and stands apart uh, as uh, God's one new people. So the gospel is the reality of the kingdom, and it is talk about the kingdom. And I say that based on the New Testament. Uh, in the gospels, when Jesus goes about preaching the gospel, he uh, the gospel writers talk about him preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel about the kingdom. It's news about that reality. It's not really news about Jesus. Uh, the gospel writers talk about Jesus as the initiator of the kingdom, the one who brings it into being, and the one who is the king over the kingdom. But the gospel is about that larger reality. Secondly, uh, it's so crucial to understand this. Uh, the gospel in the New Testament is based on the vision of the Old Testament, the vision of um, God creating one new people, Israel, in order to be a blessing to the nations and to be, you know, uh, um, 
the one corporate people who are God's redemptive entity in the world, working out God's purposes. Um, I had been raised to understand that in the Old Testament, God worked with the corporate people. In the New Testament, God is saving individuals. Well, that's the individualized gospel. That's the individualization of what the Bible actually says, and it is not what the Bible actually says. Scott McKnight does a great job of dealing with this in his book, The King Jesus Gospel, uh, where he talks about the Gospels and the New Testament Gospel as the culmination of Israel's story. The Gospel itself is a story. It's the story of Jesus, but it's the story of Israel um, coming to completion. And, of course, um, the King Jesus Gospel creating one new people um, that make up the kingdom of God. It involves the creation. Uh, the Old Testament tells the story of the creation of Israel that embodies God's social vision for the world. And it's made up of relationships. It's made up of any, any, uh, an economic vision, the Jubilee economy, not capitalism, the Jubilee economy. Um, it's made up of uh, behaviors across social classes. It's made up of uh, a lot of talk about ethnicity. Um, so, Understanding that the New Testament gospel builds on the Old Testament makes us see that uh, issues like ethnicity and social class are have got to be high on our radar. Uh, so just thinking about all the instruction in Deuteronomy uh, about how to care for foreigners, how to welcome foreigners and to not mistreat them, um, how to look after the poor and the orphan and the widow, um, how to care for uh, the ground and the soil and rotate crops to care for the soil and not wear it out. Uh, so it, it was a holistic vision. And so when the New Testament, when Jesus comes in the New Testament proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel about God's kingdom, it is assuming that kingdom life involves all of those dimensions. It's, it's a total way of life. So third, uh, the gospel in the gospels and the New Testament letters, so the entire New Testament, requires us to be cognizant, cognizant of and to attend to matters of ethnicity and social class. In uh, the Gospels, Jesus talks about how the, in the kingdom of God, the first are last and the last are first. That is, there is this dynamic in the kingdom of God of radical social reordering. It's, it's a, there's a movement happening in, in uh, the kingdom of God. People, you know, in the world, I mean, the, the way the world structures us, it has certain people lifted up, people who are wealthier, people who are of certain ethnicities, um, people who have maybe citizenship or have other privileges. They are high-born or whatever, upper-class kind of people. And there are people who are uh, lower down the social ladder. Well, in the kingdom, as, as these people enter the kingdom, and as the kingdom overtakes communities, it is radically reordering them, and it is moving people around. So it is bringing certain people lower, and it is bringing lower people up so that God can put us all together into relationships of mutuality and siblingship and partnership. So there's this dynamic of movement to the gospel. Um, in the kingdom of God. So we've got to be asking ourselves these questions. Where am I in you know, the cultural situation of things? Um, where does my income place me? 
uh, my my uh, racial identity as a white person, my gender identity as a, a man, um, as a straight man. I mean, what does culture say about me? Uh, what's my income level relative to my city? What's my income level relative to the world, relative to my state? The gospel demands that I pay attention to these things, that I know them, because when I enter the kingdom, it's the kingdom dynamic is going to be moving me around to re-situate me alongside others. So I've got to be asking the question, where are others? Where are others located? Uh, when I meet people, um, I need to be very cognizant of coming to understand their social class, their ethnicity, their gender. Uh, what does the world say about them? Um, how does the world assign them an identity? Um, and, and how does the world assign them value? Because the, once the gospel uh, creates this new community and absorbs us all into it, the gospel is going to be giving us new identities. We are siblings. We are fellow image bearers. We are co-participants in Christ. And if I behave according to the rules of the world, I have more, um, I am better because of where I live. I am being a worldly person. I am uh, I'm being basically an idolater. I'm corrupting the dynamic of the kingdom of God. Uh, the letter of James has so much to say about this. It's a, it's a letter written to churches uh, that are struggling to get along basically across uh, lines of socioeconomic status. And uh, the whole letter is about that. And um, in the beginning, uh, James exhorts uh, people who are, uh, you know, the wealthy, um, the privileged person to glory in their humiliation. And James calls upon the poor to glory in their exaltation. So based on where culture has situated different people in the church, uh, in the churches to which James writes, they need to be thinking about, they need to be very cognizant of their identities and realize that they need to be thinking about themselves differently. There's not like a one-size-fits-all Christian identity. Yes, they're all siblings, but if the world says to some people, you are better than, and the world says to other people, you are worse than, then the lower person has to think about their identity in a certain way now that they are in Christ. And sort of the better than person has to be thinking about their identity somewhat differently because of who they are in Christ. And James is getting at that movement um, that the kingdom creates of leveling and of bringing us all alongside each other so that we're partners and members of one another characterized by relationships of mutuality. So just to say, um, because of how the gospel works in the New Testament, we have got to pay very close attention uh, to ethnicity, social class, and race, um, and, and, and how we are situated in the world. Um, this also works out in Paul's theology. One of the main problems that Paul uh, talks about when he, when he thinks about the sinful situation that the world is in is that the cosmic powers of sin and death have conspired along with the powers and authorities and Satan um, to cause these awful problems in the world uh, where God's intended uh, creational distinctions have become fault lines of fracture. So that there would be a variety of ethnicities in the world was always part of God's design according to creation. I mean, there is difference uh, with Adam and Eve, male and female, there are differences and distinctions in all parts of creation, 
And that was all to make up the wonderful symphony of the glory of God in the world. Um, because no one gender, no one ethnicity um, fully glorifies God by themselves. It requires this whole symphony and this whole wonderful portrait uh, to bring God glory according to creation. But sin and death have caused the lines of difference, the lines of diversity, to become the fault lines of fracture. And that is the very thing that the gospel is healing. Um, so we have to focus on those. What are our lines of difference? What are different tribes like? What are different social classes like? What are different races, different ethnicities? Uh, just a side note, this also means that we need to understand the history of the term race and how um, race is an invented notion in order to justify slavery. But now that it's a reality, um, we have to talk about it. This, this is one of the fractures in our world. And according to Paul in uh, Romans and in Galatians and in 1 Corinthians 11, or sorry, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, um, but most especially in Ephesians 2, these fault lines of fracture are exactly what God is healing in the gospel. Um, in Ephesians 2, verses 11 and following, this is very, very clearly seen, uh, where Paul talks about how formerly uh, Jews and Gentiles were divided. Um, they were you know, alienated from one another, and God is now bringing them back together, making them uh, united in the one new body that he has created in Christ. He's bringing them together and to himself. And um, in doing that, he is manifesting that he has defeated the powers and authorities in Christ by bringing this one new body of people together by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, so again, that means we have to pay attention to how we are divided. In a Paul's theology, if we gather as churches um, along the ethnic fault lines, the racial and uh, social class fault lines that represent the same fault lines in Scripture, so if we gather as divided up churches, according to how culture says we should sort of stay together, um, Paul would see that and say, that's not a Christian church. That's not what this is about. God gathers together people across those fault lines to reunify them so that those lines that have become fault lines of fracture are transformed into lines of uh, diversity, lines of difference, and lines where we come together as neighbors, as partners, as friends, as siblings in Christ. So that is exactly what God is healing in the gospel. Um, so all these issues are directly related to the gospel. And when Paul sees um, churches fracturing, he sees that as a gospel problem. I would just point you to uh, his confrontation of Peter in Galatians 2, 11, uh, through 14, the speech that he gives to Peter probably goes on to the end of verse 21 of Galatians 2. Uh, but you remember what, what happens there. Um, there was a multi-ethnic church in Antioch. And when Peter, who had been part of a monocultural church there in Jerusalem, when he visited Antioch, he, probably running against the grain of what was comfortable for him as an ethnic Jew, he sat down at the common meal, at the Lord's meal, which was a meal, not just a piece of cracker and juice. It was an entire meal where they publicly portrayed the unity that God created in Christ by eating together, which which signaled to the world, to the, to the larger culture, this body of people belongs together. 
And that would have made no sense uh, for Jew and Gentile to gather around a meal. But that's exactly the reality, that meal, that glorifies God in Christ because God has created that social entity uh, in Christ. Um, Peter later was uh, a bit intimidated when fellow um, Jewish Christians visited from uh, from Jerusalem, and he removed himself from table fellowship with the Gentiles, basically enacting fracture, breaking the unity of God's one new people. And Paul confronts him and says, to, uh, and, and says, Peter, you're not walking straight toward the truth of the gospel. So that kind of social division for Paul is a gospel issue and understanding where we are placed ethnically, racially, social class-wise, is crucial for us to embody the gospel as God's corporate people. Uh, another place where, where Paul gets into this is uh, the Lord's Supper discussion in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, and by the way, one more massive piece of evidence of how we have individualized the Bible. Um, read 1 Corinthians 11 and the Lord's Supper um, instruction, and only about you know, five or six verses of that will be familiar to you because that's what many of us uh, have heard our whole lives in church, but we have ignored the larger discussion. Um, the Lord's Supper is not this individualized practice where we do some reflection on sins that we haven't yet confessed. Um, the Lord's Supper is this meal that depicts the unity of God's people and um, the the reflection that Paul calls for um, is, uh, or the self-examination that Paul calls for, is to self-examine whether or not I am part of fostering fracture in the church. And if I am, that's a massive problem. And in the Corinthian church, that fracture was coming across or, or was falling directly along socioeconomic lines. So the rich were gathering together with their friends and they're, you know, eating them, you know, all the good food. And once there's some leftovers, they let the poor Christians in to eat. And Paul says God takes that very, very seriously, and um, which is why some of them are getting sick and some of them are dying. So God passes judgment on his people uh, when there is fracture along socioeconomic lines in the church. So that means we need to be very attentive to socioeconomic uh, class divisions and uh, be seeing to it that in the church, uh, we are participating in that movement of reordering, uh, whatever that might mean for us with regard to our, our possessions and our goods and our, our status in the world, um, how, how we think of ourselves and all of that. This is why I think there is a massive problem, like a fatal problem, with many of the Christian responses that I've seen to the social justice impulse. Um, you may have heard of the uh, the statement on social justice that was written a, a year or two ago uh, by John MacArthur and some other authors. Um, that statement, the resistance to um, to, to uh, social justice, to God's social justice, seeing that as some kind of a secondary issue to the gospel, runs directly counter um, to what is going on in the New Testament both in the Gospels and in the New Testament letters. I've seen the same kind of response to um, people who, uh, you know, hear uh, to, you know, to the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, I've heard Christian leaders uh, make accusations that uh, this is all just cultural Marxism. 
to my mind, that is a failure to understand the gospel when we make those kind of accusations or when there's resistance uh, to um, uh, strongly agreeing with and declaring that black lives matter. Um, Marxism, or I should say Marxist critiques of culture, of power, money, culture, social class, feminist critiques of power along gender lines, critical race theory, etc. These are all these are all tools of social analysis of how power works in our culture. And these are the same these are the same ways that the prophets in the Old Testament address Israel. These are the same kind of things that John the Baptist and Jesus are saying in the gospels. These are the same things that Paul is inviting his churches to be thinking about. Um, because Paul sees that the powers and authorities have just wreaked havoc on the world and have divided people, um, inserting into the world all these corrupted power dynamics, um, he is very attentive to these dynamics. So to my mind, we need to be studying all this stuff and be thinking how has our culture corrupted um, uh you know, corrupted things so that we are turned against each other across gender lines, across ethnic lines, across racial lines, etc., across the lines of social class. So, um, uh, you know, such writers that are out there in the world doing this very same kind of work, I think, are friends of Christians. Now, when it comes to building a positive case about how um, Christian community is supposed to look, um, Christians need to do the hard work with redemptive imaginations and um, seek to enact genuinely Christian community. Uh, I'm not saying, uh, you know, build a Marxist community or build a feminist community. Um, I think that these terms, especially in conservative white Christian culture, have been demonized and vilified, whereas so few Christians have ever read any kind of Marxist analysis of culture or read any feminist uh, piece of literature. Uh, certainly haven't read any critical race theorist, uh, theorists. Um, so for the most part, uh, most people don't really know what they're talking about. Um, I see such, um, such writers that, that make critical observations about how power works in our world. I see them as very helpful uh, for Christians who are interested in living in the kingdom of God because the, in some senses, the project is the same. Analyzing how power has corrupted all of us and how, um, quote unquote, the world has corrupted our social dynamics so that we can then um, put our Christian imaginations to work to imagine how it is that we can live into the fullness of God's social justice, not any earthly vision of social justice. Um, although I do want to say that people that are out there in the world are very, very concerned about um, social justice um, are very often our friends because they want to see um, justice enacted. And this is where I th see one of a number of tragedies among Christians is that we just don't really have an answer. We don't really have much to say except to parrot, um, you know, the talking points of our favorite political commentators. Christian politics is a holy politics. We have our own thing to say and it's redemptive and it ends up being welcoming. Um, especially to the downtrodden, the outcast, and the marginalized, the exploited. Um, anywhere there is suffering, Christians um, can be present uh, to, uh, to be the embodiment of God's love. So for me as a Christian person, when I hear that there, um, you know, this cry that, hey, Black Lives Matter too, 
in the context of this larger narrative of American history uh, that has basically said that black lives do not matter, um, I can't be resistant. That's that's not an option for me. Um, what what is an option for me as a Christian is to to listen, to learn, to figure out how um, the church can be involved, how my community can be involved in bringing relief um, and having solidarity with and cultivating relationships of mutuality. And it's incumbent upon uh, the Christian church in America, at least, to learn about the injustices committed by uh, our nation in the past. Again, this is a huge opportunity to be Christian. There are Christian postures associated with all these kinds of things. Uh, lament, confession of sin, repentance, prophetic speech towards those who um, uh, wield power and who don't want uh, to, uh, to relieve the suffering of those who are already suffering. So, I mean, Romans 8 is just one of the places we could go. Could I also talk about Colossians 3, where uh, Paul talks about um, putting on the guts of compassion, like put on hearts of compassion is sort of the tidy, polite English translation. Um, but he calls on us um, to actually feel along with those who suffer, feel along with others who may not be like us, uh, to develop those feelings. We may not have those feelings of compassion. Well, we're called to develop them, to learn and to feel uh, what it's like to be uh, part of a people that have been um, abused or mistreated or exploited. So uh, just to say, defensive reactions to Black Lives Matter, defensive reactions to discussions of race come from not understanding how the New Testament portrays Christian identity and come from not understanding um, what the New Testament tells us to be doing as Christian people and as communities that are the kingdom of God. So that was a big long point. That point was um, that because of how the gospel is portrayed in the gospels and in the New Testament letters, we have to pay attention to matters of social class, ethnicity, race, and gender, and be students of these things uh, so that we can be participants in God's public justice. And the last point I want to make um, is uh, I'm still wrestling with this a uh, little bit of a depressing point in some ways. Um, but Christian people, to my mind, need to do some serious self-examination, and especially uh, white evangelical people in America, to, to discern the ways that our culture, white evangelical conservative culture, to discern the ways that this culture is captive and enslaved uh, to mammon to capitalism. Basically, capitalism is the father of slavery. That is to say, this nation, 401 years ago, in order to build a strong economy, uh, went far away to Africa um, to get resources, human resources, and brought sla African slaves to this land um, in order to build a strong economy. So, the, uh, this corrupted economy is what facilitated slavery. Um, and in my opinion, uh, that same economic pursuit is going to prevent evangelical Christians from being gospel-oriented participants in discussions of race and in moving toward um, God's public justice that involves racial justice. I say that because we have not examined well uh, white evangelical, white conservative evangelical people, we have not examined 
the grip that money has on our organizations and on our churches. Just think about it uh, from this perspective. Churches are voluntary organizations. Um, people don't have to stay there. Um, no one is compelled to go. And so pastors and churches um, have to be winsome. They have to win people. And then once they've won them to come to the church, they have to keep them. And there are things that pastors will not talk about uh, for fear of offending um, you know, offending members because they can't drive them away. It's basically a consumer model of, of church. We have to sort of sell people on being part of this community. And that has to be a positive, winsome, compelling message. Um, when you look at the Gospels, you know, Jesus is often trying to drive away disciples saying, look, are you sure you want to sign up for this? Uh, I'm calling you to take up your cross and I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to give my life. And that, you know, it's like his disciples, that's not a very winsome message. Uh, it's not. This is a call to take up a cross-oriented way of life. And um, my fear is that uh, pastors, for fear of offending people in their churches, and especially people who give money, um, pastors are not going to be talking about, um, they're not going to be calling out our cultural corruptions and the way they have their grip on many of us. White evangelical church pastors are not going to be talking about this. Um, and uh, leaders of organizations are going to be very slow to be talking about these kinds of things because their jobs often are to raise funds. And um, if we have to speak prophetically to culture or if we have to speak prophetically to our constituencies, we're going to be hesitant to do that because it's going to make people uncomfortable. But if the gospel drives us to it, then we have got to do it. It is always in our best interest. And this is where I fear uh, that perhaps uh, we are in danger of becoming a radically unholy people. <clears throat> Far more captive to the dynamics of mammon than we are um, faithful to the cross of Jesus Christ. This is uh, a reality that I must confess just breaks my heart. And it makes me feel at times hopeless um, about American Christianity and especially about white conservative evangelicalism. Um, we are we are in the grip of some idolatries that we have just not taken the time to examine. Now, frankly, I think there are ways out of this, but they will take such a radical conversion of our imaginations. Um, I want to think we're up for it, but it's going to take some serious social reordering, and we are not up for discomfort. Maybe this current moment, this coronavirus moment, um, will bring us to our senses. Uh, I would love it if that were the case. Um, but there are ways out of this. Pastors can uh, consider becoming bivocational. Get a job. Um, don't be so tied to the paycheck that comes from the church. Uh, I have a friend who for a time was a bivocational pastor, and he talked about um, how liberating it was to never think about money. He was free to love the people in his church, and he could say things to the church that were sometimes uncomfortable, but he didn't have to be afraid of offending anybody, and he wasn't a jerk. But being liberated uh, from the almighty dollar um, is one way that pastors can actually love their churches and speak God's word to them uh, in all of its truth. Churches, um, in their corporate imagination, um, may have to consider some serious changes, maybe downsizing, becoming smaller, 
not going for that big building that we want to build that will be really impressive and will draw lots of people. Um, smaller churches can really become true communities of fellowship. Um, it'll it'll be a blow to our our corporate ego. But again, who are we? Whom are we serving? Um, churches can uh, have as a project identifying uh, the consumer impulses that hold them. These are idolatrous impulses. And um, how can we, as corporate communities that are existing under the lordship of Jesus Christ, how can we turn towards service to the larger community um, and, and offering hospitality instead of um, becoming places where we, we simply put on a good show and try to keep uh, members coming and members uh, loyal and loyally giving their money? Well, just to say... Um, uh, to my mind, evangelical, white conservative evangelicals need to consider how we are in the grip of capitalism, um, how we are in the grip of serving the economy, and how economic factors are keeping our communities from being actual communities that uh, depict for the world uh, the dying and rising of Jesus. So, some things about race, something I talk about uh, and want to talk about and want to continue uh, learning about, and for the reason um, that this is a specifically Christian conversation. And um, the issues around race and racism and our historic uh, sins as a nation uh, running 401 years, these are things that the gospel speaks to directly. These are realities that scripture addresses directly. And as Christian people, um, I want to say that this is the way of hope for us. It's a hard hope, and it's it's um, it will be a difficult and long generations long road, uh, but it's one that's worth taking because uh, uh, engaging with these realities is the way that we, as the church, draw upon uh, the presence and power of God for our communities uh, to thrive and to make it to the day of Christ. And have that day be a day of joyful reception and not um, something awful. How awful to get to that day. And because of the lives that we have led as corporate bodies, uh, we hear those terrible words, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, that's another one of the books, episode three. I feel like I need to come up with a cool sign-off uh, at the end of these. I'm working on it, and I would love to tell you what I'm going to talk about or who I'm going to talk to next week, but uh, this is just a fun thing that I'm kind of, I've got a list of topics that I want to um, cover, list of people that I want to talk to, and I don't know what order I'm going to go in. So, uh, you know, next week, I look forward to talking about fill in the blank. I have no idea. At any rate, hope you enjoyed. Have a great week.